Well, the table today is supposed to give us a picture, a glimpse, a reflection of what today's proverb describes as a feast. And of course, it reminds us of another kind of feast, another feast that Jesus is always inviting us to. But as I reflected on this over the course of the week, I couldn't help but think about a feast from a movie that some of you have seen, I know, uh, Babette's Feast. If you've seen the movie, you know that in the movie, Babette is a French woman who's lost her husband and she lost her son and she becomes a refugee and she's looking for a new home. She's taken to a little village on the Dutch coast and two sisters there who for years have been continuing this really serious religious sect that their father had started years before are there and, and, and she's given the opportunity to have a home with them. She offers to cook and to clean for them. They say, we don't have any money. We can't pay for you to do that. And she says, if you'll just allow me to have a home here in your midst, I'll cook and clean for you for free. So they say, okay. And Babette moves into that community, making that her home, making that her new rhythm of life. This goes on for about 14 years until after about 14 years, what happens is Babette finds out that a friend of hers has been renewing a lottery ticket for her in France year after year after year. And she discovers that she has just won the French lottery of 10,000 francs, a huge change in her life. About this time, she also learns that the sisters are planning on having a celebration with their now congregation that's dwindled down to about 10 people on what would have been their father's 100th birthday. Babette wants to be a part of this celebration, so she goes to them and asks if they will allow her to prepare a real French meal. They agree. And so she gets to work. She gets to work contacting her old contacts in Paris. See, what they didn't know was that Babette in her old life was actually a famous Parisian chef. And she, she finds those contacts and she begins to have all of the ingredients of this extravagant French meal shipped over to them. And she gets to work on that. The quail, the duck, the champagne, the wine. She's working away at the kitchen and, and the members of this congregation, including the sisters, begin to come by the kitchen and they, they smell the smells. And, and, and over the years with Babette, basically what they've allowed her to do is make their bland meals a little less bland. But this isn't that. And they begin to get worried. It's, it's a bit of a scandal. They, they thought maybe the meal might be too sensual. It might lead them into sin if they experience something like this. This is something that the, the, the congregation begins to worry and gossip about, but they don't want to upset Babette. And so what they decide to do is we'll just endure the meal together and we won't say a word through it, before it, or after it. And that's the plan. Until the night comes and they sit down at the meal, there was actually someone visiting from afar who'd experienced something like this before in France, and he understood that this was an incredible feast. And as others began to partake of it, the food moved them. And as you might imagine, the champagne moved them as well. And they began to, to loosen up a little bit and laugh a little bit more in ways that they hadn't in years. And, and then something even more began to happen grudges that existed between the members of the congregation, conflict that had been there for years, began to dissolve in the midst of the storytelling and the laughter. 
unrequited romance began to bubble up between some of the people at the table. It became this magical, mystical night that, that, that where these people were transformed in their community through the, the wonder of this meal that Babette had prepared with all of this love and this joy. And the night ended with them holding hands around a well in the middle of a city, singing songs of praise to God. After that, the sisters assumed that they'd be saying goodbye to Babette. This had to have been her farewell meal now that she'd won the lottery. But no, she explained, she wasn't going anywhere because she'd spent every dime she'd won on that meal. Out of the sheer love and joy of it, she'd given everything she had. Out of sheer love and joy, she'd given everything she had to them. It's a story that has so much gospel in it. It's a story that reminds us so much of the gospel that Jesus is always offering to us. The gospel that this table symbolizes. When we come to the table, we remember that. We remember in the midst of this feast. The night when Jesus was handed over to suffering and death and all of the reasons why he did that. When he took the bread and he broke it, saying to them and to us, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. You can take the bread now and partake of it. Join in the feast with Jesus, doing this in remembrance of Him. Likewise, at the table, we remember in the midst of that feast when Jesus took the cup and He poured it out, saying, This is My blood, which is poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, as often as you do, in remembrance of me. At the table, we remember that feast. We remember all that it means and all that it is always offering to us. We remember that Jesus is always beckoning us into this place where we receive the gospel and we take part in all that Jesus has for us in this life. And at the table, we also remember, I think, and it could be helpful to keep the image of Christ and Babette in front of us as we go throughout this message, that Jesus, like Babette, has given all so that we might have all the extravagant feast of abundant life. And when we come to the table remembering that, we perhaps also remember all of the ways we are often both receiving and rejecting that gift. An idea that is also present in today's proverb. In, in fact, it could be helpful, as I said, just to continue to keep the image of both Christ and Babette in front of us because what we see in the proverb and what we really see recurring throughout all of the proverbs is a common concept 
that is often a character, that's also a character. Lady Wisdom. The book of Proverbs opens proclaiming that the whole purpose of its pages is to help us attain wisdom. And then throughout its pages, wisdom is presented to us as this this person. This person who has been with God since the beginning of creation and who participated with God in the act of creation. And that may sound familiar to you as well. Creation is is the house of wisdom and wisdom has been calling out to all of us from the beginning of time, begging for us to listen and to learn to live wise lives, which seems like more than another way of saying abundant lives. And here in Proverbs 9, that life is presented as a feast. Lady Wisdom, it says, has built her house. She has hewn it out of seven pillars. Now, the seven-pillared house of wisdom can mean any number of things, but what it most likely assuredly means is that the house is lavish. Because in these days, a house wouldn't have required most of the time even one or two pillars. And if you had a two-pillared house, a house that needed to be held up by two pillars, it was probably an extravagant house. So if there was a house held up by seven pillars, this was an incredibly extravagant house. And of course, seven in the Bible is also the number of creation, the number of completion. And so what the author could be saying is, is that wisdom's house is the temple of all creation, which means we are surrounded by it. It's crying out to us from everywhere. And, and, and most people in this day wouldn't have had meals with meat in it, but wisdom's feast is the most lavish feast they might ever encounter. It's for everyone, and much like in the meal with Babette, the feast when we come to it of wisdom is one that can transform us. It's loud and it's lavish, and the loud and lavish call of Proverbs is for us to come to wisdom's table and receive all that she has for us. And the reason it's not only lavish, but loud, is because we so often ignore it for other things. See, Lady Wisdom isn't the only concept in Proverbs that is also a character. There is also another woman. And the way that sounds is the way that they mean it. There's Lady Wisdom in Proverbs, and then throughout Proverbs we also see Lady Folly also crawling out to us. Foolishness. And and, and most of us would would not like to think that we're ones who listen to the call of foolishness over the call of wisdom, but we so often do. And I think this may be because it's often difficult to tell the difference. After all, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the wisdom of this world seems like foolishness to God. And the wisdom of God often seems like foolishness to this world. We see that in Babette's story as well. There's something inside of us that says that kind of generosity is foolish. The kind of generosity that would cause you to give everything that you have is foolish. Why would anyone do that? And yet we know that it's also just that kind of foolish love that caused God to give God's life for us so that we might live our lives in the way of God's wisdom. So how do we do that? With wisdom crying out and calling out to us, how is it we do that and what does that look like? Well, well, first of all, we know 
that wisdom is not the same as information. Wisdom is not information or experience or or, or feelings or know-how, but a special combination of all of these things that we learn over time. In his TED Talk, The Loss of Wisdom, Barry Schwartz says that the good news is you do not have to be brilliant to become wise, and that is really good news. He then goes on to say that the bad news is that without wisdom, brilliance isn't enough. That it's likely to do as much to get you in trouble as anything else. Wise people are made, not born, as someone has said. And we know that wisdom is not the same as knowledge. Knowledge can be memorized. Wisdom has to be developed. You do not grow wise simply because you grow old. It takes approaching life over time with a certain kind of intentionality. That's what it takes. Aristotle, the great teacher, described practical wisdom as the combination of moral will and moral skill, saying we have to have the right moral will to want to do the right thing, and we have to have the right moral skill to figure out what that right thing is. Is and, and Aristotle would say, this is a craft that we have to hone. He was fascinated with the craftspeople around him. In one story, Aristotle said that, that he, was, he was out in the community and he noticed these stonemasons who were building pillars and, and they had to figure out how to measure a round pillar, which was difficult for them to do with the tools that they had because they had these straight, hard rulers and it's difficult to measure a round pillar with a straight ruler. And so they were innovative and they created a new ruler that would bend. We would call something like that a tape measure. And Aristotle was fascinated by this, not just the fact that they did it, but the innovation and the instinct that it took to do it. And Aristotle appreciated that sometimes, often in life, it's just this kind of thing that needs to be done. You need to know how to bend the rules. And wisdom is sometimes also about this, knowing how, when, and why to bend the rules. And of course, we saw this in Jesus' life a lot. We can, we can name any number of circumstances where Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do because he was bending the rules. And the call for us today is to develop this kind of keen discernment in our lives to develop this kind of skill. The call for us today is to choose to grow in wisdom. So again, how do we do that? Well, I want to mention four things that are interrelated and they're not all the things. I mean, we have to learn to We have to learn from our mistakes and we have to learn from the sages and the wise people in our life. But I wanted to mention four basic interrelated things that I think we can do in life that are a hallmark of growing in wisdom and having a wise life. Number one, having a wise life or living wisely is a life that is a listening life. A wise life is a listening life. Proverbs says this again and again and again. In fact, if you look back at the proverb right before this, it will tell us over and over and over again that wisdom is calling out all around us and our role is to listen, to hear it, 
A wise life is a listening life. We've got to learn to listen well and to listen well to God and to others. How do we listen to God? Well, in Scripture, what we see over and over and over again, that often Torah and wisdom are considered equal. So the the invitation there in learning to listen for God's wisdom is to learn to immerse ourselves on a regular basis in God's Word. And that may seem cliche to you, but, but what it means for a lot of us is that we've got to make a decision to reallocate attention in our life. Because many of us are giving a lot of attention or being formed again and again and again, day after day after day, by other voices, other mediums, other media. We give our attention to social media and other kinds of media and even news media and things that aren't, aren't all bad, but we are being so formed by these things that we can't help but hear the voice of folly within them shaping us in ways and causing us to grow in ways that are not in alignment with God's wisdom. We've got to learn to listen for the voice of God, and we do that by immersing ourselves in God's Word. We also do that by immersing ourselves in learning to attune our lives to God's Spirit so that we can hear the voice of the living Christ speaking to us and calling out to us and and helping us learn to live in the way that Christ wants us to live. Did you know... Then in the early church, after the resurrection, after the ascension, after, the Pente- after Pentecost, when, when people had experienced these things in Christ, they were, they were scouring the Old Testament trying to find pointers to Christ to help them understand all that Jesus was because they knew that Jesus was incredible, but they were trying to see if there was something in the Scriptures to help them understand who Jesus was. And if you look at what they say about Jesus in the New Testament, often the passages they're borrowing from in the Old Testament are about wisdom, about lady wisdom. There there is this almost equality in the description. If you look at Colossians 1 and John 1 and compare that to Proverbs 8 between lady wisdom and the pre-incarnate Christ. And the point is that when we're growing in our relationship with Jesus and we're learning to listen and to attune ourselves to His voice, we're growing in wisdom. A listening life, a wise life, is a listening life. A life that listens well to God and listens well to others also. In our relationship with others, a great indicator of true wisdom isn't how much someone speaks, or how or what they say, but how much they listen. In fact, quietness is often a hallmark of a wise person. Wise people are wise because they're comfortable listening. Wise people are wise because they're comfortable being open with the fact that they don't know everything. Wise people do not assume that they are always right. Wise people do not blow up or shut down when they are comfort when they are confronted with a new or difficult situation or idea instead they listen and they ask questions of themselves and those they seek to understand wisdom is all around us and a wise life is open to sharing in that wisdom when it has the opportunity a wise life is a listening life number one number two and and very related A wise life is a curious life. 
And a wise life leans into curiosity over complaining. Complaining, you see, is often energy spent that you could have spent asking questions. It's not to say that it's, it's, it's wrong to critique or to ever complain, but the next time you face a difficult situation, ask yourself this question. What lesson could I be learning from this situation? And how might I approach it or these other people approach it in the future? What can I learn? Being curious and complaining are often two fundamentally different postures. And a huge part of growing in wisdom is learning to be insatiably and non-defensively curious. A wise life is a curious life. A wise life also learns to live the questions. We are often only one or two questions away from learning something fascinating. You've heard this before. If you want to be interesting, you have to first be interested. Others almost always have something to teach us. If we're ready to ask questions, to listen, and to reflect. A wise life lives the questions and lives them reflectively. And then, then finally, number four, a wise life is a learning life. You have to be ever ready and eager to learn something new. This is sometimes called beginner's mind, which is about having an attitude of openness and eagerness and a willingness to hold our preconceived notions loosely. Wise people are curious. They listen. The wisdom helps them develop empathy, which creates a wider world view and thus growing wisdom. And in Christ, a wise life with all that and more is also an abundant life. Proverbs tells us that wisdom is always calling out to us, inviting us to the life that Jesus died to give us. And if we'll receive it, if we'll pursue it with eagerness to participate in the whole feast that God is offering over time through growing in God's wisdom, we and our world and the relationships in our lives will be transformed. As we continue to worship today, may we do ever so ready to grow in Christ and to continue growing in His wisdom.